Well, if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, you have joined us at the very beginning of a brand new series of sermons uh, that we've called Being the Church. It's meant to be a, a several-week look at um, what it means to, to be a church, what constitutes a church, and how the local church is meant to live together according to God's Word. Now, we come to this series for a number of reasons. One, uh, many of you as members have been asking questions, raising questions about various aspects of what it means to be a church, questions about congregationalism, questions about the roles of men and women and things of that sort. We come to this also in the recognition that many of us come from very different church backgrounds. And so we come with uh, pretty different perspectives on what a church is, from people who are brand new to the Christian faith, who've never been a member of a church, to folks who've maybe been Christians a few decades and have been parts of different kinds of congregations. Uh, we love that diversity, and yet the Scripture is our plumb line. We want to sort of bring our collective attention to God's Word, to think again together as a new family about what it is to be a church. And so as we work through this series, I want to sketch a, a pretty basic ecclesiology. Uh, ecclesiology is a fancy word for doctrine of the church, what the Bible teaches about the nature of the church. Uh, and by that ecclesiology, I hope we grow by God's grace, again, in unity and common understanding about God's calling uh, on our lives. So the structure of the series is pretty simple. The first five sermons, we're going to sort of lay out that basic ecclesiology. What is the church? That's what we'll start this morning. Um, conversation about the roles and the offices inside the local church. We'll do that over five sermons. And in that next eight uh, sermons or so, we're going to take various one another passages from the scripture as a way of sort of fleshing this out. What does it look like to live together as, as a church? Um, and so we'll be going through the summer thinking about these one another's as a practical vision. But this morning we want to start with some basic questions. We'll give you four of them. Uh, we'll be answering these as we go basically through the whole Bible. The whole Bible. In very few words, Jonah. Uh, In very few words. <laughs> So we want to ask and consider who are the people of God? When did they start? How have they grown or changed if they have? And what should the people of God be doing in the world? That idea, the people of God, it runs from the beginning of the Bible all the way through the end of the Bible. And indeed, is one of those ideas that you could use to summarize the entire Scripture. The people of God are God's chosen people in God's chosen place, working on God's chosen program or mission. Chosen people in God's chosen place, uh, working on God's chosen program or mission. If you ever want to summarize the Bible in one sentence, that, that would be one way to do it. The Bible is about God's chosen people in God's chosen place, working or serving God's chosen program or mission. Now we want to see this beginning in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to see this idea of the people of God developed through six, six stages, if you will. And the first stage is this, the, the first marriage. 
We see it with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. Turn with me there to look at verses 26 to 31. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. So if you turn to page 1, you'll find Genesis chapter 1. And when I say chapter 1, I mean the big number. And when I say the verse number, that's the small number on the page. Genesis chapter 1, big number, beginning in verse 26, small number. And this is a part of the, the, the account of how all things were created and how all things started. And we read this beginning in verse 26. God said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So you see here, this very opening of the Bible is in one sense about God starting and having a people for himself. Who are his chosen people here? Well, it's Adam and his wife Eve. They are made by God himself, made unique from all of creation, made in God's image and likeness, which means they bear a resemblance to God in terms of God's capacity for love, his capacity to rule, his capacity to think and to create. And that's true of you too, beloved. The most fundamental thing about every living human being is that we are made not from random atoms or descended from primates. We are made in the image and the likeness of God himself. And you see they're in God's chosen place as well. He prepares a a garden for them. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So life is meant to live with God in the place that God establishes. And you'll notice that he also gives them a program. He gives them a a mission as well. Adam and Eve are to have dominion. That is, they're to exercise a, a caretaking stewardship and rule over all of creation. And more than that, they're to fill the earth with God's image and likeness through marriage and childbearing. Malachi 2.15 says that God created marriage because he was seeking a godly offspring. He wants to fill the earth. He wants them to, to multiply so that his image and likenesses spread throughout the earth and might be seen everywhere in the faces, in the lives of his people. So you've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden with God's program 
exercise dominion, fill the earth with his glory. But many of you know the story. Our first parents betrayed everything God did for them. Genesis chapter 3, the the serpent, the devil enters the picture and he tempts them to to disobey God by eating from the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, They had one job, don't eat from this tree. Satan comes and tempts them and it's the very thing that they do. And rather than being God's people in God's place on God's program, they were now sinners separated from God and soon scattered throughout the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever in, in evil. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. They've gotten their eviction notice. They've been set out. They've been taken out of the garden which was cultivated for their flourishing and they've been placed out in this barren wilderness which will be hostile to them in every way. They are no longer God's people, no longer in God's place, no longer following God's program. And Genesis chapter 6 and 9 will tell us that sin had gotten so bad, so, so prolific, and so profoundly ugly that God um, was, was discouraged that he had made man and he, he judges man in the universal flood of Noah's day. And Genesis chapter 10 tells us after the flood that man begins to multiply again and spread again. And after a long period of time, we come to Genesis chapter 11 and man ain't changed. He's so proud. He says, let us build a tower all the way to heaven. God comes down to see their little puny tower. Confuses their language. And scatters them across the earth. And so the book of Genesis in these first 11 chapters really gives us a story that starts beautiful in this beautiful home in the garden. And and everything is there. And in the entrance of an enemy, and the corruption of the people, and the destruction of that first paradise, and we're left wondering at the end of Genesis 11, what, 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 what is God going to do, or is mankind left lost forever? And that's where we come to the second stage. First stage was that original family of, of Adam and Eve, that first marriage. Now we see the pilgrim family, the, the patriarchal period of Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 50. At the end of chapter 11, we meet a man named Abram. He's the son of a man named Terah, and he has two brothers, Nahor and Haran. You see that in Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Abram has a wife named Sarah, and the one thing we're told about her when we meet her in Genesis 11, verse 30, was that she was barren, and she had no child. She's barren, and she has no child. This family comes from Ur of the Chaldeans, which would be in ancient Babylon and modern-day Iraq. Terah was taking his family from Ur, heading to Canaan. 
But along the way, they decided to settle down in a place called Haran. You see that in verse 31. So we have this pilgrim family out in the Middle East, somewhere between their hometown and the home that they are journeying to. And it's at this point in the Bible that the action zooms in on this one family, and that's because God begins to rebuild his people using this pilgrim family. Look there, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. These verses are known as Uh, as the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant is a relationship between a superior party and an inferior party. It's a relationship where the superior party uh, promises blessings and protections as long as the inferior party lives up to the requirements and obeys the requirements of the covenant. Here the covenant is being made between God, the superior party, with Abraham, the inferior party. Abraham does not deserve this relationship with God. He has not done anything to earn it. He's living in tents in the middle of nowhere with the rest of his family going on about his business. But God sovereignly chooses Abraham, plucks him out of the midst of all the peoples, and decides he's going to make this man an entire nation. This is the beginning of the the people that we call Israel, the nation Israel. And it's it's an indication of God's creative power when it comes to making for himself a people. I mean, you realize that the first Jew was actually a Gentile. God calls him out of his Gentile life and is going to give him a new identity and to make him a new people. And we see in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that same formula. Notice now, God's chosen people is Abraham and his descendants. And God's chosen place, did you see that, is a land that he will show Abraham, a, a land of promise. And God's chosen program is that through Abraham's descendants, look at the last part of verse 3, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The rest of Genesis covers the the patriarchs, the the descendants of Abraham. Uh, We get his sons uh, um, all the way down to Joseph. And this promise made to Abraham is extended to each chosen son that, that, that God chooses, to Isaac and to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons that we call the, the children of Israel. So at the end of Genesis and the very beginning of Exodus, we're told that this one man, Abram, with a wife who could not have children, has now given rise to three generations or so of sons, and they've now become a family of 70. 70 pilgrims journeying toward the land that God has promised them. But God's not done. We see the third stage in God making for himself a people. You might call this the liberated nation. This is the story from the book of Exodus all the way down to the book of Judges. When we begin the book of Exodus, as we said, there are about 70 Israelites who who end Genesis and are living in Egypt. 
And they had been living there comfortably as, as an immigrant community. But now there's a Pharaoh who comes to reign in Egypt who did not know Joseph and did not like Israel. So look there in Exodus chapter 1 verse 9. We'll get the Pharaoh's opinion of these people. So if you're in the book of Genesis, the next book in the Bible would be the Exodus. Exodus chapter 1 verse 9. This is what we read there. Pharaoh speaking. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The ruler of the most powerful nation on earth then starts stirring fear about the immigrant community. Pharaoh says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. They had been living there a long time by this point with no indication of any of that. And so Pharaoh has a plan, verses 13 and 14, where he says, what the Bible says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. The theologian Christopher Wright says this, the people of God begin this period as an oppressed ethnic community within a very powerful imperial state. But the interesting thing is this. We skip verse 12. Look there at Exodus 1 verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they spread abroad. This is the first reference in the Bible to Bebe's kids. <laughs> you cannot stamp out God's people. They're a nation within a nation. They are suffering and oppressed. They are receiving cruelty at the hands of their leaders. And yet, in God's wise goodness, they are multiplying and multiplying the harder life gets. Here's a bonus question for you over lunch. What does it mean that God chose an enslaved people as his covenant people? Surely that's not insignificant. That's got to have some implications for how we read the Bible, how we understand human relations, how we understand political advocacy. Get with somebody over lunch, not like you, and talk about this question. That's free. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, God's people are enslaved. They're not in the promised land, and they are not fulfilling God's mission or purpose. So Exodus tells the story of God raising up a prophet, raising up a liberator named Moses, who is, who is going to represent God to Pharaoh and is going to advocate for the liberation of, of Israel from bondage. And, and at chapters 3 to 18, tell that story of Moses confronting Pharaoh over and over and over over again and bringing plagues and judgment against Egypt until Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. Exodus 3 verses 7 to 10. This is where God renews his commitment to this nation now. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. It's all kind of good news in that, isn't there? First of all, that they are his chosen people, and he sees their affliction. 
I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to, notice, bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God says, I see my chosen people. It's time for me to move them to my chosen place. And, Abraham, and God raises up Moses for that precise purpose. Now, we get the statement of his, of his program or his purpose a little bit later. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. There the Bible says, Moses, God saying to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Remember that. Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. That's the program. God sought to liberate his people so that they might be free to worship him alone, to serve him, to seek him, to praise him as his people. This gets clearer after the Exodus when they escaped from Egypt. Three days later, they are gathered together at Sinai. So look over at Exodus chapter 19 now. They're gathered at Sinai, and Moses now addresses them. This brand new nation emerging out of slavery, wondering what next. And God, speaking through Moses, says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Covenant now there is mentioned specifically. You shall be my treasured people among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember that. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So now we have moved from the Abrahamic covenant we have here the words of the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant for Abraham is being extended, is being built upon, and, and now God is adding some conditions to his promises to his people. And in chapters 19, 20 to 23, we get the law. God gives his Ten Commandments, and then he unpacks those commandments into, in terms of the law that Israel is meant to live by. They're a nation now. They need a constitution. They need a bill of rights. They need a legal system. And God is giving that to them right here in Sinai in Exodus 19. So God's chosen people are his treasured possession. The apples of his eye. A people he has selected out of all the nations of the earth. A people that he created from one man, Abraham. And God's chosen program gets spelled out in terms of they are now a kingdom, notice, of, of priests. They're a holy nation. They are meant to reflect his character, his likeness, his holiness to the entire world. So we've gone from a married pair in Abraham, or excuse me, Adam and Eve, to a pilgrim family, the 70 descendants of Abraham, and now we have a theocratic kingdom. A kingdom ruled directly by God. Interestingly, Deuteronomy 18, verse 16, you don't have to turn there. 
This day here at Sinai is called the day of the assembly. That's interesting because the Hebrew word there for assembly is translated in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, with the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word that we normally translate church. And this is why the, the old divines would sometimes refer to Israel as, as the old church, the old assembly, the old gathering together of God's people. And when we, when we end Exodus, the people are not yet in God's chosen place. They're still journeying. And so we come to the fourth section. And this is the failing monarchy. The failing monarchy where we get a kind of separation of church and state. The five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and, and Joshua tell us about how God took his people into the promised land, into the chosen place. And the book of Judges tells us about Israel failing to remove all the other peoples in the land, and as a consequence, spiraling over and over into disobedience to God. They would rebel against God, God would let them suffer a little while. Then God would send them a judge, a deliverer, someone like Samson or Deborah or Gideon. And they would deliver Israel from their oppressors. And for a little while, Israel would, would obey God. But then they would go back to their sin. They're in the place that God has chosen, but they're not quite the people that God has chosen them to be. They were supposed to live under God's rule forever. But instead... Israel got in the land and decided they wanted to do things their way. That's the very heart of sin, beloved. Going your own way instead of God's way. Israel decided they wanted to have a, a king like all the other nations. They took God's acceptance and approval for granted even as they were rejecting his rule. You may recall this incident from 1 Samuel chapter 8. You can turn there with me if you like. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So you get Joshua, then you get the Judges, and after the Judges you get the books of Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8 records what I think is the lowest point in the history of Israel. This is rock bottom. 1 Samuel chapter 8, look with me. At verse 4, say amen when you get there. Well, y'all, was quick. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, prophet, at Ramah. Verse 5. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, that's some way to start a conversation, later. Man, you all old and broke down. Your son's hard-headed. We got a plan. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This thing grieved Samuel. He wasn't happy with it. He didn't want to do it. He, he prayed. He, he sought God and agonized before God. Then we get verses 7 and 8. God says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, 
from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God had been their king. God had been ruling over them. When they started lusting after a human king like all the other nations, they were in effect rejecting their God. And the worst part of this is God said, give them what they want. Beloved, it's possible to get what you want, but not want what you get. Israel got their king, but they lost their God. To quote Christopher Wright again, he summarizes this period through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the whole monarchy, the whole kingdom. He summarizes it this way. He says, they opted for monarchy. And then he begins to talk about their experiences with the kings that came. They opted for monarchy, survived Saul, who was crazy, served David, suffered Solomon, split in two, and sank into oblivion and exile. They just went downhill from there. And the prophets would be sent by God over and over and over again to call them to turn back to God, to turn away from their way, and to renew their covenant with God. It was, it was so bad that, that God chose a word picture for his relationship with Israel that still in this culture, our culture, where people don't have any shame, it still makes us recall in a bit of shame. He called it whoredom. He called it adultery. Look with me in the prophet Hosea. Turn with me there. I don't know what page is on, but it's in the Bible. Hosea chapter 1. Prophet Hosea had an interesting ministry. You can find Hosea right after the book of Daniel uh, and before the book of Joel, the book of Amos. Right after Daniel, you get Hosea chapter 1. Hosea had an interesting ministry because God called Hosea to marry a woman who was a prostitute, who was going to be unfaithful to him. And he called him to do that as a kind of picture to Israel of how they were treating him. They were to be his wife. He was to be their groom, their husband, They were rejecting him over and over. So read with me or look with me in Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, now pay attention to the names of the children, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will have no more, well, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. 
But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or, or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. It's a remarkable chapter. I mean, it, it sandwiches together just deep and profound despair with, with great and exultant hope. So on the one hand, verse 6, no mercy. I will have no mercy on them. But on the other hand, verse 7, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. On the one hand, verse 8, not my people. You are not my people. I am not your God. And on the other hand, verses 10 and 11, you are not my people, but in that same place you shall be called children of the living God. And Israel is left wondering, how is this going to work? How are we going to not be his nation and be his nation? How are we going to not get mercy and get mercy? How are we going to not be his people and be called his children? Perhaps this is a good time to note that all three of the elements belong together. Chosen people in a chosen place on a chosen program. Remove any one of the three and the entire thing like a Jenga tower falls down. It's striking to me how many of God's people are playing Jenga with Jesus, trying to pull out obedience, trying to pull out mission and purpose, trying to sometimes live like they are not God's people. That's going to crash, beloved, just as it crashed in Israel's day when God said to them, nope, you are not my people. And so the Old Testament closes, and for about 400 years, God is silent. There's no prophet in Israel. There's no deliverer in Israel. In fact, Israel is conquered over and over and over again. And so one begins to sort of burgeon in despair and wonder about hope. For just as Adam and Eve failed in the garden, and the nation of Israel failed in the promised land. It doesn't matter whether God puts his chosen people in a sin-free garden or a land flowing with milk and honey. Man always fails to obey God. Sin always corrupts man's relationship with God. So whether it's angels with a flaming sword outside of the garden, protecting the garden, or invading armies coming into Israel and into Jerusalem, simply getting God's chosen people into God's chosen place isn't enough to fulfill God's program in the world. We must become something in God before we can achieve something for God. So when the pages of the New Testament open, it picks up the story of God's Son in a surprising way. Call to mind again Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where God says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. 
And remember again, Hosea 11, or Hosea 11, chapter 1, where God says, when Israel was my child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, in the course of centuries of, of, of the Old Testament and prophecy after prophecy, you might be forgiven if those seem like insignificant lines. But they point forward to God's true story, the, the next movement in God's redemption. So turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. So we find Malachi, turn just a couple more pages, you'll be in Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, big number, verses 13 to 15, small number. We begin to see God's true son. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It's referring to Joseph and Mary. It says, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this is the theological significance Matthew makes of this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. Jesus came into the world to rescue God's chosen people, to bring God's chosen people into that chosen place and to send them on God's program or mission. And, and, and so he's the true Israel. He's the true son of God. In fact, the first five chapters of Matthew's gospel seem like a retelling of Israel's history in light of Jesus and what Jesus does. So, for example, we just read Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Jesus fleeing to Egypt and coming out of Egypt parallels God calling Israel from bondage in Egypt centuries earlier. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Tell us of Jesus' baptism which 1 Corinthians 10, 2, refers to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea as a kind of baptism. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, we see Jesus being tested in the desert, which reflects Israel's failed temptations in the wilderness. Matthew's chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Christ's greatest, longest sermon in the gospel is an exposition of the law. He's redefining and explaining the law that Moses gave in Sinai in terms of the kingdom of God and his own mission. He's the second lawgiver. We could go on, but perhaps it's enough to say just what the Father says at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Everything Israel was supposed to be, Jesus actually is. He fulfilled the promise to Israel. He fulfilled the hope of Israel. He fulfilled everything God ever required of his people. And that's good news because if you and I were in the Garden of Eden, things would have worked out exactly the same way. If you and I had come out of the exodus with Israel, if you and I had even been Moses himself, things would have worked out the same way. 
If you and I had lived under King David or King Solomon, if we had lived under the monarchies of Israel when we were in the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom or the united kingdom, it would not have mattered, beloved, because we have the same problem that all those old saints have, a sinful heart. And we would have failed God's perfection, but not Jesus, not God's true son. He provides all the obedience that God requires in a covenant with him. He provides active obedience. That means he obeyed God's commands explicitly and perfectly in our place. He provides passive obedience. That means he he also accepted the consequences of breaking God's law when he died on the cross in our place. Whether active or passive, the obedience we need, Jesus has provided. And by the shedding of his blood, he becomes the guarantor of a new covenant built on better promises. That's the whole argument of Hebrews. So now, to be in covenant with God, one must have faith in Jesus. One must turn from sin in repentance and put their entire trust in the Son of God as the true Israel of God, who died to pay the penalty of our sins on the cross and who was raised from the grave for our justification. And it's through our union now with Jesus through faith that we become a part of the Israel of God. We become the people of God with a new heart on which is written God's law. And with the Spirit of God, which is promised in the gospel. And so the last move in this grand story, part six, is that God has created now a multinational family. The church. A people from every tribe and nation. John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 tell us to all who did receive him, that is Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right notice to become the children of God who were born not of blood, not a descendant of Abraham in in, in sort of Jewish ancestry, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born, beloved, of God, born again through faith in Christ. And the promise that was given to Abraham gets gets applied now, not just to the patriarchs and not just to the nation of Israel, but the promise now gets applied to the church. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. This is what we read. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, As righteousness, or excuse me, yeah. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So not just children who are naturally born and descended from Abraham, but those who have faith in Jesus who are the true spiritual descendants of Abraham, the sons of Abraham. Verse 8, I love this sentence. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So that little phrase at the end of of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, is God preaching in the Old Testament to Abraham the gospel, that those who are going to be right with him will be right with him through faith in the coming Messiah. So then, 
those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Jump down to verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is so true that Paul then writes in verse 29, notice there, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All that God promised to Abraham and affirmed in the patriarchs and clarified through Moses and fulfilled in Jesus is now ours through faith in Christ the sons and daughters of Abraham, the true people of God. So much the case that in Galatians 6, verse 16, Paul just refers to the church as the Israel of God. What a marvelous thing it is to be a Christian, to be God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, you can turn there with me if you like, just turn right or left a couple of books. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 18 Here the Apostle Paul takes all the sort of images of the Old Testament worship of Israel and he applies it to the church. He says, first of all, he asks a question, verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God, that's you, beloved, the church, with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, now he's quoting the Old Testament and applying it to the church, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, verse 18, and I will be a father to you, just as we've been singing this morning. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. It's like the New Testament writers just cannot get over the fact that we are the people of God. God's chosen people headed to God's chosen place, living according to God's program. So to take a different apostle, not Paul this time, but Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, these well-known words. The Apostle Peter seems to have in mind both Mount Sinai as well as Hosea. And he seems to be joining together the promises of Sinai with the predictions of Hosea. And so he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. You remember that from Exodus? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's his summary of Sinai. Then verse 10, once you were not a people, remember that? But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is Christ and the church that joins together the despair and the hope of Hosea. How they could at one time be not my people, And in the next breath, be called children of the living God because of Christ's completed work. Beloved, the ultimate work, choosing the people and getting them in God's place on God's program, isn't fulfilled until Revelation 5 and 7 and Revelation 21 and 22, where people from every nation, every tribe, every language group are saved through faith in Christ 
and gathered around the throne of Christ with the, with the 24 elders and all of the angels and the Father on his throne singing the, the hallelujahs and the, and, the, and the you are worthies to Christ the Lord. Ultimate work in choosing a people, preparing a place and advancing his program occurs in Christ and his church, his bride. ARC, that's us. But not just us, but all God's churches who believe this gospel. And not, not just churches in the city or just in this country, but, but around the world among every people, every nation, every tribe. We find God's people plucked from the world by his hand, adopted into his family, living under his rule, advancing his program or mission. That's the story of the whole Bible. That's the story that hangs over all of our stories. If you're ever looking for purpose or a sense of identity, connect your personal story to this big story that God is completing in the world. That's where you fit. That's where you belong, is in God's story of choosing a people, leading them to a place, and leading them by his program. So three quick applications as we close. Applications for the people of God. Number one, Christianity then, local church, is more we than me. It's more we than me. We are a people. We are a new people. Life and mission is not about the individual, but about the family. Western individualism and, and consumeristic Christianity have, have weakened the church's sense of our collective self. We have need to understand more deeply that we are a tribe, that we are a people. We are the family of God, and our primary identity is not our ethnic identity. It is not our class standing. It is not our educational background. It's not any other marker of identity. The most wonderful identity that we have, which we must get deep in the soul, is that we are the people of God. We are his tribe traveling to his place, working on his program. We have need to understand in a world full of not only individualism, but a world full of, of conflict between various kinds of groups that Christ has taken a people who were no people and made them God's people. He's taken the people who had no mercy in the world and given them God's mercy. And that has to forge our sense of self. And that has to be carried with us into all of those sort of splits and divisions and breaking points and cliques and, and other kinds of tribes. So that we show forth the excellence together of God our Savior. And together we show forth his holy character as one people in Christ. It's more we than me. And we must be a holy people because our God is holy. Second thing, Christians, family, we are not 
home yet. We're not home yet. This world, no place in this world is our home. From Anacostia to Clovis, New Mexico. The stopping points. Right? John 14, the Lord Jesus Christ said he was going to prepare a place for us and would come again and take us there. Now the Christian family, we are still a pilgrim family, a pilgrim nation traveling to the new Jerusalem, the land of glory and God's presence. We, we need then, therefore, beloved, a pilgrim mentality. We need to travel light, right? We need to not get encumbered by a lot of things in this world. We need to shed some stuff, stuff killing us. You know, you got a whole lot of stuff. You can't move fast. You know, we got U-Hauls connected to U-Hauls, towing stuff, wondering why we can't get to where God wants us to be. You got too much stuff. This world is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. So we must resist the temptation to invest our hearts and our lives in what's passing away. This world is passing away. But we have a home waiting for us, unshakable unspoiled, undefiled, whose foundations are not laid with human hands, but whose foundations are established by God. Oh, that God would give us grace to live like pilgrims, to not be settled. The other thing about pilgrim mentality, if you've got a pilgrim mentality, you don't spend a whole lot of time bickering and quibbling and worrying about little stuff. You got somewhere to go. You got somewhere to be. You got a destination to press to. One of the unintentional side effects of stopping too long is you start looking around and start making assessments. Assessments you wouldn't have had time to make if you just kept going. Some of us are too still, right? And so we see too many things we want to comment on and be unhappy about. That's a settler's mentality. You're trying to get that space prettied and fixed and decorated just to your comfort. You don't have that problem if you keep moving. I don't have that problem if I keep moving. We ought to be the happiest people on the planet because we have an eternal home that we're going to. We need a pilgrim mentality. Number three, finally, we have a mission to fulfill before we get home. Matthew 28, 18, 20, the Great Commission. Christ sends his church into the world to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, notice, to obey everything I have commanded you. That's our calling. And as God's children, we're meant to obey that calling both in our lives and to help other people enter into that life of faith in Christ and following Christ in the obedience that comes from, from faith. While we're passing through this world, we want to pick up a few passengers. We want to invite somebody in to the, to the pilgrim train. We want to let them know of, of this home that's been purchased for us and this, this path that's been laid for us and, and that it's all in Jesus, the Savior. And this is the thing, the people of God do not have an option regarding this mission. It is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an option. It's why he has saved us and made his, us his people and left us in the world. We dare not fail that mission. We have to get home 
and we have to take others. And so we want to be faithful to share the gospel and to help one another grow in maturity in Christ. All these things belong together for us to be a healthy church. Uh, The doctrine of the church is, is that we are God's people headed to God's place, serving God's program. And everything else is beneath that. Everything else is either meant to aid us in that essential identity or it needs to be removed. Everything else from the roles of women and men to um, congregationalism to uh, everything else we might have questions about, we have to think about it beneath that canopy, beneath that umbrella, that we're the people of God, God's chosen people, going to God's chosen place. And we need to do that according to God's chosen program. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we would invite you to become one. This journey we're on, it's worth your life. It's worth you giving up everything. This Jesus we serve, he is worth your love. He has done everything to take away your sin and make you a new creature. He died for you and was raised for you. And he's calling you to turn from sin and trust in him. We would love to help you do that so that you might be a member of the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, it's a marvelous thing.